You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the show. Today's guest is the lovely Julie Duffy Dillon. Julie is a registered dietitian, eating disorder specialist, and food behavior expert. She is a speaker, writer, and the host of the podcast, Find Your Food Voice. For more than two decades, Julie has helped people take back their power over their relationship with food. She fights against diet culture in her writing, on her podcast, and with her online courses. In today's episode, we discuss the challenges and weight bias that folks with PCOS and other chronic illnesses face especially when living in a higher weight body. We also discuss the anti-diet approach to managing PCOS and the importance of prioritizing your eating disorder recovery. If you have been told that you need to lose weight to manage your PCOS or other chronic illnesses and you feel stuck in a dieting trap, Julie is here to help I promise you will enjoy this episode of the Full and Thriving Podcast. Hey, Julie, how are you today? Great, Meg. I'm so glad to be here chatting with you. I'm so glad that you're here. We have so much to talk about. We do. I'm ready. Yes. Awesome. So before we dive into our topic today, which I would like to talk about managing chronic illness and kind of in an anti-diet way, if possible. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear how you became an anti-diet, fat-positive dietitian. I mean, it's a really twisted road. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, I do want to hear it. <laughs> well, I've been working as a dietitian for a few years and I'd always wanted to become a therapist. Like that was always something that I really wanted to do, but somehow I just fell into nutrition as my undergrad. It was kind of strange, but I never really let go of the whole therapy thing. When I was a dietitian for about three years in that first three years, I worked in a hospital. I worked in every setting you can imagine in three years, but I landed in pediatrics and, and specifically I became a diabetes educator too. And what I noticed early on is that people, especially the kids I was working with, higher weight kids were treated differently. And there was also so much attention on higher weight kids. So this was in like very early 2000s. So this is when that whole PowerPoint presentation, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about from the (laughs) CDC, when that was released, where like they showed the map of the United States going from blue to green or red. I don't know. It was just like showing like how weights have changed so much. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's going to be confusing. But if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about, because that's all people were talking about in the weight space. But everyone was just like so anxious about this weight conversation. And I noticed that kids in higher weight bodies were really suffering and treated like crap. And same with 
other humans, like older, you know, adults were also not treated very well. And so I decided at that point, like, obviously as a dietitian, I'm not equipped to do this because Uh I'm telling people what to do and it's not quote working. And so this counseling degree is what I started. I pursued, I took a two years leave of absence from my job and got these shiny new tools. I got a new job as an eating disorder dietitian and also a dietitian to help people go through bariatric surgery which was a really, I only worked there for six months, but in that six months time, I figured out that I really love helping people recover from an eating disorder. But then I also heard myself saying two different things to mm-hmm. these two different groups of people, oftentimes who were struggling in the same way with the same concepts and the same like shame and blame. And I did not feel okay about this. Like it kept me up at night. It was really stressful. I have a chronic condition that was super like loud <laughs> at that point in my life because it, I was stressed. And at one point I was teaching a body image class for an unnamed diet company. Hmm. And um, Gee, this, I wonder. yeah, this diet company provided lots of powders and meal replacements and things like that. Mm-hmm. But they also provided a script to the dietitians teaching their class. And since I was the counselor and dietitian at this point, I was the one who taught the body image type stuff. So they gave me a script and it was supposed to be 30 minutes long. And after like three minutes, I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I walked out. And so I got in real big trouble because people complained. (laughs) I got called to the office and that's when I just let my boss know, I can't do this anymore. Something's happening to me and I can't help people diet anymore. I see how harmful it is. I'm talking out both sides of my mouth and my cognitive dissonance was basically resolving and I was no longer able to teach people how to do disordered eating anymore. And I felt like really ashamed of what I was doing to people in higher weight bodies. And I was like, I just can't do it anymore. And Mm -hmm. so she was basically like, if you want this job, you have to keep doing this, you know? And so luckily I was able to quit. Like I was able to build a practice really fast and get on my partner's insurance plan. And I didn't have any dependents yet. So I was like, all right, this is the universe is telling me. And around that same time, I started also working with a lot of people with PCOS. And as dietitians, one of the things that we all carry is this really big book called the Krauss book, which is this like, it has to be like four inches thick, at least big, huge textbook. And we carry it for like at least two years during our undergrad and it like has every answer to like, how do you help someone with this condition with nutrition? And so I looked it up <laughs> with my first client with PCOS, like, what do I do? And it just said to help people with PCOS lose weight. So I was like, well, then what do I do? You know, like yeah. weight gain didn't cause this condition. So why would it cure it? It's not a curable thing. It's this chronic condition that someone lives with. So what I spend the next probably 10 years trying to figure out is how to help people with PCOS with this chronic condition, also who are recovering from eating disorders to move forward, feel better, you know, but lessen their symptoms from their chronic condition and still recover from their eating disorder. And honestly, that was the intersection I worked the most was eating disorder recovery along with living with PCOS. And if a listener doesn't have PCOS, but is living with a chronic condition, they may find some of this information helpful because I had to really sit down and think about how do we prioritize things? How do we figure out how to make it work? And it's, I don't know, it's messy, but it's, and it's not sexy, but it can work. 
<laughs> wow. Yes. Well, first of all, what an adventure of a career mm-hmm. you've had <laughs> all over the place. And I think it's really admirable that you had that critical thinking piece within you and also the awareness that there was some conflict going on where you're like, mm-hmm. people are being mistreated because they're in a higher weight body. I'm giving different information to different people. That is good. So good for you for actually recognizing all of that. Oh, thank you. When it did take me a long time though. So <laughs> not too many kudos, but honestly, it's a very common dietitian thing because mm-hmm. we do talk about food so much and we spend like an hour with clients sometimes every week that you hear repetitions. Yeah. So we're oftentimes, I think the first to jump ship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I do have a side note question about that story. When you were talking to that class about body image, what did they have in there that made you want to quit on the spot? Because it was all about acceptance and there's no good or bad bodies. And, Um, but yet it was like a weight loss company. So it was like, they were being hypocrites, you know, and it was like really falling flat. And it was a lot of what we see with like the fake diet, like non-diet talk now with like a lot of diet companies, just like, oh, you know, we want you to love yourself no matter what, but just be healthy. Yeah. That is so cryptic. Like we all know what the subtext of that is. We know the subtext. I mean, it was like this flashing red sign. (laughs) Like, stop. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Well, so fascinating, but I totally see the internal struggle you dealt with. Mm-hmm. That must have been like a spiritual struggle in a way, just being there may have been so some long. spiritual references in there sometimes. Yes, <laughs> like, yeah. What is going on? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So for the people who have never heard of PCOS, could you explain mm-hmm. what that is and maybe the link with the weight bias attached to that? Mm-hmm. Sure. So polycystic ovary syndrome is also PCOS is an, an endocrine disorder that starts in the brain, actually in like the hypothalamus. And the end result of it is this hormonal imbalance that causes a set of symptoms. <laughs> it's always funny to describe it and define it because it's not like this, like when you have strep throat, you have this strain of something, you know, it's really this like thing is going on and it can cause these symptoms, which can cause this. And that PCOS diagnosis just being kind of ambiguous is a really common problem because for a lot of people, they may have been diagnosed, like listening to this and like, oh yeah, I've been diagnosed with PCOS, but I'm not really sure if I have it. And part of that is because in order to get diagnosed with it, you need to basically be sure you don't have these other conditions. They call it a diagnosis of exclusion. And in order to even be considered, you have to meet two out of the three criteria, the Rotterdam criteria, which one of them is some irregular or absent periods. And the second is some sort of signs, either through observation or clinically higher androgens like testosterone. And then the third is after getting an ultrasound, what we would call quote unquote cysts on the ovaries, multiple cysts, which they're not cysts, they're immature follicles, and there's many of them. And it can cause this like look on the ultrasound that looks like a string of pearls. And PCOS, you know, someone could have this polycystic ovary syndrome, but actually not have any of these cysts, which oh. are not really cysts anyway, which is, I always think a great trivial pursuit question if that game still exists. So what in the end, if you have PCOS, what you may be experiencing is these irregular periods or really heavy periods 
or you may be really tired all the time because of the anemia from that, or because of the hormonal imbalance that provokes insulin levels to be really high. So insulin is not a marker for a diagnosis of PCOS, but most people with PCOS do have high insulin levels and that causes these really intense carb cravings. I don't have PCOS. So I know when I crave a carbohydrate, if I want some chocolate, it can be like annoying. And what my colleagues, my friends, uh, clients I've worked with over the years, what they have told me about PCOS carb cravings is they're primal, they're urgent. And like every cell in the body is screaming, like I need to eat carbs now. And this is a really interesting part of like living with PCOS and trying to recover from eating disorder. If you're body and your brain are telling you these intense messages about needing to eat and may be also battling these messages in your brain of like, I must be different with my eating, or I need to have willpower or whatever, however the messages are in your brain, the listener. And what we know about insulin levels being really high is that when we can find ways to lower them, the urgency starts to go away. But of course, like the eating disorder kind of mechanisms of restriction and dieting, abstaining, over-exercising, those are all things that just make those insulin levels in the end higher, not mm-hmm. lower. So it's like a double torture mechanism. Basically. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's PCOS in a nutshell and also like what it kind of feels like. Mm, yes, that sounds very challenging to live with, just with all the symptoms you have. And then also this super intense carb craving apparently it's a heightened carb craving than your baseline, which who doesn't crave chocolate once in a while? Yeah. Like it's a normal thing. Right. But then Mm -hmm. to have this reaction of like, even if just haven't eaten the meal and felt pretty satisfied with it, but even 30 minutes later, walking past like a plate of brownies or a loaf of bread and be like, I have to have that. Wow. I might, I'm going to die if I don't have it. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah, that's quite the craving. So what would you say are some of the greatest challenges that people living with PCOS deal with as far as maybe the illness itself, but also that connection to diet culture? There's so many. From the get-go, from just diagnosis, folks are, like as a healthcare provider who's often been in the shoes helping a person sort through their diagnosis, Remember in the beginning, I had to look through that big, huge book and all it told me was like, just help people lose weight. And upon diagnosis, people are, if they're seeing like a a medical provider, they're often just given birth control pills to help their periods be regular and then told just to diet and lose weight. And I know for many people, they'll even explicitly tell their healthcare provider, listen, I'm recovering from an eating disorder or I am in recovery and I cannot diet. But yet the doctor will still say, you have to diet if you have PCOS. And Mm -hmm. I want you to know that is not true. (laughs) Like that is like my life's work is like, no, you do not have to diet with PCOS. But that is one of the big things. Like they're not told like how their body actually works with PCOS. I think there's just like a lot of misogyny kind of going on with the whole experience of getting diagnosed and managed with PCOS and then told, don't listen to your body. You have to cut out carbs and sugar in order to prevent diabetes and all these things that are used kind of to be scary, Mm. which, you know, someone with an eating disorder or who's been maybe even in recovery for a long time, oftentimes people will report getting diagnosed with PCOS will really trigger 
a relapse or like really hardcore getting close to it because of the way it makes it sound like you have to. And it really gets in the way of recovery. It really makes me mad because I first, you know, before I really specialized in PCOS, eating disorders was like more of my primary. I just started seeing more and more people with PCOS. And I think we always need to protect recovery. Like to me, that's always first. People will be like, well, I need to manage my blood sugar and my insulin and make sure I'm ovulating and protect my recovery. And my question is like, well, sometimes you have to prioritize something over another. It's not necessarily a black and white thing, but like sometimes you need to prioritize. And I, if I got to choose for everyone, it would be prioritizing recovery over all those other things. I think Mm. prioritizing healing in your relationship with food is the best thing you can do for your PCOS. Yeah. You know, well, that's where it gets complicated. I think Mm -hmm. because how do you go about healing if your doctor is telling you, you need to lose weight or Mm -hmm. your doctor is telling you to cut out all of these foods? What do you suggest someone does? This is for Mm -hmm. the PCOS conversation, but also anyone managing a chronic Mm -hmm. condition who's facing these things. First, this really sucks. You shouldn't have to do this. That's what I always want to say. (laughs) You shouldn't have to like teach your doctor. You shouldn't have to advocate for yourself at the doctor, especially if you're living in a body that's like not getting access to care or being oppressed in some way, like your doctor should be doing better. And if you have the spoons to advocate for yourself, there are some strategies that people have taught me. You know, I'm someone who's not in a higher weight body. So I've never had to live through this. I always like want to be sure to name that. And I've learned this from other fat activists who've helped me to better understand that experience. And something that people have taught me is like, even just logistically how to set up the appointment to try and bring someone with you to the appointment, especially someone who is not in a higher weight body, how sometimes the conversation will be different, which is shocking to me to hear, you know, just how much constant push to weight loss, like just having a thinner person in the room oftentimes will be enough for a healthcare provider just to hear you. Um, Can I just audibly gasp and just isn't that just so you know I did not know that and that is outrageous and so upsetting because what is that presence of the thinner person just kind of going to make the healthcare provider take that person Mm -hmm. a higher weight body more seriously? Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, I hate hearing that, but I'm not. I'm not shocked. But it just is gross. It just like shows how problematic it all is. And I'm so grateful for the first person who ever told me that to like be able to let you know, this is one thing you can do. Uh, There's probably people listening who are like, yes, of course I've noticed that. (laughs) And and as people who are not higher weight, we're the ones that are shocked, but you know, it is what it is. So that's one thing. And then as for conversations, you know, there's, there's some things you can do about just even letting people know, Hey, healthcare provider, I'm recovering from my eating disorder going on any diet or removing any food group literally can make me relapse and could be fatal. I need Mm -hmm. another option. Mm -hmm. Sometimes just being that direct can help. I know sometimes when people say to a healthcare provider, I have an eating disorder history, they don't always know that like once a person has quote recovered that they still need to like not restrict, (laughs) you know, like I don't think they always get that, but just even saying like, Hey, if you are telling me that's the only way I can do it, this could actually kill me. Like this could lead to 
a relapse that could be the end. And sometimes that needs to be blunt like that. I have other people who have mentioned, hey, could you just show me the research on XYZ diet and PCOS and how it helps most people without being harmful? And basically there's so much emphasis on those who are not wanting to diet to show data. And what one of the founders of Health at Every Size, Deborah Gard, what she always says is like, why can't we put the ownership on the person pushing the diet to show the data too? So that's one thing too. And then let me think, there's another one you can even just ask is like, hey, what do you recommend to your clients or your patients with PCOS who are not in higher weight bodies? I'm just curious what options you give them and to hear what they have to say, you know? Yeah. Just being asked that could maybe help them realize Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. their own bias right there. Yeah. And I have on my website, I have a free download in case it's helpful. It's a diet-free doctor visit download, and you can go in there and print it out. And it basically helps you individualize what you want your out of your doctor visit, like saying like, I don't want to talk about diets or I don't want to be weighed. And on the backside of it, it has like all the research on why. So in case it plants a seed, mm. you know, it helps just to be like, here's my research for you, doctor. There's a couple of people I would point the listener to as well, if they're needing help with this conversation. One person is Reagan Chastain. Her yeah, website. She was, on the, she was on the podcast too in the past. Oh, good. Cause like yeah. her doctor visit handout page on the website is like, I at least look at it once a month, you know, it's like such a good reference. And so, yeah, looking to other people who have the same lived experience who can then, you know, help in that conversation. But what I do know for PCOS in particular, the every five years, there's evidence-based guidelines released. So the last one was 2018. So we have another one coming, but there's like a whole nutrition section on these evidence-based guidelines. These are a really big deal. They Over 3000 people participate in building these evidence-based guidelines. And like I said, they're released every five years, hundreds of pages of research summaries are in them. The nutrition section states that there are zero diets that have been found to help most people with PCOS keep weight off long-term. I mean, it's, it clearly states that in there. Unfortunately, the next part of the sentence is just pick one then. (laughs) I'm like, you're so close. Come on. (laughs) What? It's like a swing and a miss right there. Like I know. I was getting kept going. No. <laughs> so, you know, you could even point out there, you know, saying, hey, the 2018 evidence-based guidelines for PCOS state there are no nutrition interventions that have been found to help until there are. Can we look at some other options? And the other options can be medications, can be supplements, it can be stress management, boundaries, therapy, like doing a sleep study. Like there's so many other things you could look into managing that you could add to your life instead of restricting. Mm-hmm. First of all, I love how you kind of help the listeners get some empowerment. You know, if they do want to do some of that Mm -hmm. self-advocacy work, they can use any of those tips. I think Mm -hmm. that's awesome. Even with other chronic conditions, Mm -hmm. asking for the research when someone tells you to lose weight or change your diet could be really empowering and helpful. So first of all, thank you for sharing all of that. Secondly, this is my thought here. Someone who's living with a chronic condition has been told at some point that diet can magically heal them. How do you start to debunk the legitimacy of leaning on diet to heal these illnesses that aren't necessarily a symptom of like your body size? Hey friends, I have a major announcement. 
If you are a regular listener of the show, you know that I am the founder of The Recovery Collective, which is the original online eating disorder recovery community for folks all over the world. Well, on September 20th, we will be opening membership doors again for the last time this year, welcoming an entire new group of beautiful humans who are on the path to healing their eating disorders. And guess what? You can be part of that group. When you join the community, you'll have access to live and pre-recorded workshops, group coaching, yoga classes, nourish and learn sessions, meditation and journaling sessions, peer support, and more. You'll also gain a community of friends and peers to connect with and encourage you along the way. So head on over to show notes now and sign up for the waiting list. Remember that doors open on September 20th. So sign up before doors close. Myself and 80 other members of this community can't wait to welcome you inside our little home on the internet. All right, so I'll catch you later. Now back to our planned content. Right. Okay, so I have two different directions for this. One is research-based, like looking at the evidence that we have and we have short-term evidence. And, you know, I know PCOS the most, and I haven't found a condition where this hasn't also aligned, but with PCOS, we know short-term research, six weeks long. Yes. Cutting out macronutrients helps lower insulin and blood sugar and blood pressure, cholesterol, inflammation. Like it does all these wonderful things. Long-term PCOS research is technically only 12 weeks long, which is pretty crappy. And that's where it shows it's still having some impact, but it's losing the umph. There's Mm -hmm. one or two research studies that look at like some popular diets in PCOS that are six months long. And at the six month mark, most people have dropped out of the research. They're really small studies too. They're like 11 people in them, you know? So Mm -hmm. only three or four are left. And what ends up happening is being a really big impact in the first six weeks, it's starting to not be as impactful. We don't have long-term nutrition studies in PCOS. We just, they don't exist. But the one we have, the ones that look at the general population, it shows that by the two-year mark, most people have regained the weight, if not more. For PCOS in particular, the chronic dieting is it, it shows that it causes, which is a big word to say, it causes higher insulin, more inflammation, higher blood sugar, more depression, higher blood pressure. So it makes it worse. So that's the clinical side. Okay. That's like the evidence side. What about your own lived experience with diets? Like this is where I, the only time I will quote Dr. Phil. How has it worked for you? <laughs> I don't know if Dr. Phil is even a, even a pop culture reference anymore. But you know, your own diet history is really important. I haven't met many people with PCOS who haven't dieted. Like most people that I've worked with have dieted for 10, 20, 30 years. And if you actually spend the time where you go through your whole diet history, folks who are in the PCOS power, my course and community, that's one of the first things we do is we like have you go through all the different diets you've done your whole life. Like let's count them up and see what was going on and see if they quote worked for you or not. And if you've been dieting for, I don't know, three years or more, or you've tried it that long or more, I would even see less than that. 
But like, I'm thinking about the majority of people with PCOS I've talked to, by the time I'm talking to them, they have years of diet history. And so really your diet history can inform you. This is very valid data. It's important. It's more important than research. It's your experience, you know? And so if letting someone know, like, this has not worked for me, like when is enough? And it may not be that you can convince the healthcare provider or your aunt or your partner, but like, I hope you can convince yourself that you have tortured yourself long enough with restricting, with dieting, with going through that kind of like roller coaster that comes from dieting and eating disorders type stuff. Like your experiences are valid enough to know that they are not going to work for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I always ask like, how many do you have to go on to know? It probably has already told you that it's yeah. not going to work for you. And of yeah. course you're not the exception. Like your experience is the rule. Like that's how it happens for most people. I am so grateful that you brought it back to the individual here because Mm -hmm. I think that is the most important piece of information to take in is, you know, this is my history. This hasn't worked for me. So Mm -hmm. am I going to keep believing in this false dream that it will, or can I look at the reality of the situation? So that was, that's really helpful as well. Can I add one thing to that too? Yeah. So much of like the promise of dieting and chronic disease, this is some of the things I'm learning with PCOS is like that it can cure it. And I think that's part of diet culture's kind of like sexiness is like, it can be the cure. It can fix you. It can allow you to have everything you want in life. And what we know to be true with PCOS is that it is a chronic condition. And I appreciate there's like sadness with this, but like there is no cure. Like it will never go away. Even after menopause, it's still there. Like it can't, and we don't have a cure for it. And dieting isn't going to be the answer for it either. Mm-hmm. I I also really appreciate you sharing that very directly mm-hmm. because I think we do take on these false beliefs that diet is the cure-all mm-hmm. and that we can just magically suddenly heal whatever is going on. I know like I always struggled with skin. Like I was always, always breaking out, still do. And even with my eating disorder history, there have been times where I'm like, oh my God, is there something I need to change with my diet? I know never to do that. But I feel it's like when you're desperate for some sort of cure of something, we're almost taught that food is probably the issue, right? Who's that sudden way we can get out of it, out of the suffering, which isn't, isn't true. Yeah. Nutrition science is just not that cool. (laughs) It just is not that magical, honestly, unless you have like an anaphylactic reaction or like this hardcore allergy to something, it's just not going to be that black and white. Mm. And, and honestly, how much power we have in the world, how much like access we have to like boundaries and enough rest is going to be so much more important than like the Mm -hmm. kale you eat or like what smoothie you're eating and helping everyone else to do that too is going to be so much more powerful than like what you get at the grocery store. Mm, Yeah. We give food way too much power over us and something that needs to change. And that's why I love talking about this anti-diet approach to managing Mm -hmm. PCOS and chronic illness because I feel like that is a more realistic approach to healing. Mm -hmm. And essentially, as you know, I know you have a group PCOS power, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. 
how do you take individuals who have spent their whole lives dieting as a form of managing an illness, right? And then just teach them to let go of that and trust that they didn't need it. Snap our fingers, magic wand, right? (laughs) Like I do have a level of health privilege where I haven't had to be in that sort of situation, but I'm imagining being in those shoes and letting go of dieting when you've been told it's that magic pill. How do you even do that? Like, what if you have no body trust? Right. I mean, that's, that's a hundred percent it. And it's going to be different for everyone based on the types of privileges they have. And, you know, the way we do it is through this like nine step kind of framework, but in essence, what it really comes down to is helping you to connect with the tools that you need to appreciate that you don't need to be fixed. We need to fix this world. So whenever you get a message to restrict, to overexercise, to do some kind of like rigidity or manipulation with your food for that to tap into, Oh, that's me trying to fix me. It's Mm -hmm. not me that needs to be fixed. We need to fix PCOS healthcare. Like there needs to be more research. So I have more tools or I should have been treated differently in the doctor's office. It's not my fault. Like I hope to build that kind of repair the brain to be rewired in that way Mm. is ultimately the goal while also collecting things that you can add to your life to feel better. And here's the thing that's really cool. It's like when someone with PCOS has been not eating enough, which most people with PCOS are not eating enough (laughs) and whether they would say they have an eating disorder or not, but once a person's eating enough, and then we have some like strategies that we use that adding in that can help just really over about six to 12 weeks, start to lower insulin levels, feeling better, like feeling energized for once those cravings feel different, sleeping better. And just noticing like, oh, by actually adding more to my life, I feel better. It is a, it's a good thing to help then add some confidence into, oh, maybe it isn't me, you know, yeah. it really is that I've been told to like play small and that's not working. Mm. Yeah. It's very deep. <laughs> <laughs> I can, it can be, I don't know if you're an Enneagram person, I'm an Enneagram four. So I like Oh, dark. So what is Enneagram for again? I don't know. We're like the dramatic, deep into meaning folks. We're like the dark part of the Enneagram. (laughs) (laughs) I have a very social four though. So I kind of, sometimes people are like, what? Oh yeah. We are all the feels. So is that kind of like a Scorpio vibe? Like that's kind of- I don't know. My son's a Scorpio. I'm a Taurus. So I don't know. (laughs) I don't know as much about that stuff. (laughs) That's funny. I'm an Enneagram seven, which is like, uh, I'm like embarrassed. Y'all are fun. No, fours and sevens have a good time together. You like make us like take action. So- (laughs) Good. (laughs) That's the whole point of this podcast for people- There you go. See? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Sevens are a good time. Yeah. Everyone wants to hang out with a seven. The enthusiast entertainer Mm -hmm. type. We avoid, this is like probably low-key why I got an eating disorder. One of the factors was we avoid emotion. Yeah. Come to four. We can hang out and and you can help us take action. And I can talk about like emotions and feelings all day. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So. I think we were just saying the comment about what was the deep comment you just shared? I'm having a a brain fart, but I thought it was a really nice symbol of, Mm -hmm. yeah, just playing small, you know, adding more to your life Mm -hmm. is so helpful, even in recovery. Like 
-hmm. you have been restricting in all areas of life, try adding to your life, adding more food, adding more community and see what happens instead. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes it may be hard to do that with food, but the thing that's really cool about our relationship with food is like, you can add in other places first and see how that goes. And, you know, adding some boundaries, adding more therapy, adding rest, noticing how that goes. I think it also helps our brain to get used to that kind of experience of adding. So then having permission to add food can come in then too. And Mm -hmm. for a lot of people with PCOS, having permission to eat enough is a really long process because they've been traumatized by doctors just telling them to eat less all the time, no matter what. And so, yeah, adding some boundaries, maybe the place you want to start, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and finding out that, yeah, again, whatever you can do to help you to really connect with that truth that you don't need to be fixed. That's what I'm here for. I am here for that as well. <laughs> yes. Okay. Everyone listening, what can you add to your life? Mm-hmm. Let's stop restricting things like food and all that rest. Let's stop restricting. What can you add in? Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to be food right now. It could be rest. It could be socialization. And then hopefully you feel inspired to add more food yeah. in. So I love that. Okay. So what advice do you have for people who have maybe developed disordered eating patterns mm-hmm. due to managing chronic illness? It's uh, a big question. I, yeah. I think that's why I took a deep breath. Well, and part of the deep breath is because I have a feeling there's a lot on your shoulders carrying Mm -hmm. around like the blame, Mm -hmm. shame of this chronic illness. Too many times I think we're taught that chronic illness, like we have this personal responsibility that we can fix it. And that's why food is so easily like the answer, right? But if you're wanting to move away from that, one of the best things I think a person can experiment with is like the concept of permission, you know, acknowledging where you are and permission to feel whatever is coming up. And, you know, as I'm talking, I'm like, oh, I'm losing the question, but I'm just thinking about the heaviness of just like trying to move forward, you know, instead of getting stuck in that disorder eating kind of place. And that's bringing back to the question. So the thing I would encourage you to do too, besides like the permission is also that kind of cure that maybe somehow, maybe it hasn't been like put in that in your brain. It's like, oh, this will cure your endometriosis or your PCOS or, and I'm thinking about certain conditions that have that kind of, I don't have an inflammation kind of component, your MS. Like so many diets are pushed for different conditions that we really don't have great interventions for yet. I would encourage you to dissect where that is in your brain, like that, where is the lie? You know, is that one of those memes? Like, where's the lie? The lie that the food can cure it. And just notice that we don't have anything that powerful yet. And it is like opening up a really big box of different emotions. I can appreciate the sadness that comes from that. Like we don't have that magical thing. And for some people, they need to go through the process of experimenting with those just to know, okay, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And I'm not living with those conditions. So like, I think that's not for you or me to judge, you know, we want you to be safe, but also do what you need to do, but come back to what is your experience? What is your history and prioritizing your recovery 
is one of the most health promoting choices you can make. I also like want to say you don't have to be healthy for you to deserve like respect and dignity, but also choosing recovery and all those conditions I named will always promote health than long-term. Mm, such a helpful distinction there. Like, yes, that's why I like prioritize recovery. Always prioritize recovery. Always, always, always. I have to clap my hands. You probably heard it. <laughs> After <laughs> prioritize recovery. <laughs> It is like, it's the, cause not like having slips and relapses in PCOS. I know it causes more inflammation. It makes insulin levels higher. It is something that makes more deficiencies. Like it's something that is not going to promote health. <laughs> so if health is what you're like leaning towards, then recovery will always be the thing that leads to the most bang for your buck in the health department. It's always going to be what delivers in the end the most. I love to hear this. I love hearing that because I think it can get so confusing Mm -hmm. to those who are managing, you know, Mm -hmm. healing something, managing an illness and also recovery. But I do see that there's a lot about recovery you can heal and full Mm -hmm. recovery is possible. So in that sense, you are working on the thing that actually can maybe improve where in some cases there is no cure, like you said. Yeah. 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 So that's really helpful. Quick little question before we wrap things up. When you say prioritize recovery, can you just give maybe a little example of what that might look like to someone who is living with PCOS? Like Mm -hmm. maybe something you've seen in your practice recently. You may be told or read about something with PCOS, like you have to eat less carbs or eat a certain amount in a day. I will die on that hill of like, I don't think that's actually research-based and like has evidence behind it, but let's just say it did in some way. But for most people that I know who've in any way had disordered eating or recovering from eating disorder, restricting a food group will only cause bad things. And including with PCOS, that would cause higher insulin and higher inflammation, which are the two things that we really want to manage the most in PCOS to help with symptom management. And so eating enough and having a relationship with carbohydrates that has unconditional permission to eat will be the most beneficial long-term. And so restricting carbs is not an option. And that's why for me, like I was already calling myself an eating disorder dietitian when I was starting to specialize in PCOS. So I was like, restricting carbs are not an option. Mm. And not everyone I was working with was in the throes of an eating disorder. So like, but I was like, yeah, no, you don't have to do that. Like I was like, it's putting the cart before the horse. There's like so many things we can do. And 95% of people that I've talked to, by the time they go through all these other things, carbohydrates become a moot point. There are some people who find, oh, when I eat carbs with some protein, I feel more energized. Like that kind of stuff happens, but not, nobody ever goes, I've got to cut them out. <laughs> that just doesn't yeah. end up being something that's necessary. And again, that's from folks who don't really identify with a history with food that feels complicated. It doesn't need to be the standard because it really, the people who can do it without hurting them and actually promoting health, it's such a small amount of people. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Thank you for that. I always want to just make sure people can see how it applies to their own real life. Like think about how you can prioritize recovery and be protective of your recovery progress as well. So yeah. Thank you. Yes. Well, Julie, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure and really fun. And you shared so much 
for the community today. My last question for you is, do you have anything important coming up that you'd like to share with the audience that maybe you'd like to promote or that you're excited about? Yeah. So depending on when this goes out, September is PCOS Awareness Month. So you'll just be hearing me talk a lot about it. <laughs> so and no matter when you listen to this, it could be a completely different month or year, whatever. Still come join me because I'm still talking about it. And my website, julieduffydillon.com. If you go to the page, julieduffydillon.com slash voice, I have a ton of free downloads. And one of them is your first three steps away from dieting with PCOS. And that's a really good place to start with me. If you happen to be catching me during September of 2022, I have a yearly doctor visit survival guide that we're going to be promoting and putting out there that basically gives you all the labs that I would recommend asking the doctor some ways that you can get ready for the visit. If it feels kind of, if it feels traumatizing for you to go to the doctor, how you can set yourself up to feel a little bit more at ease and then how to recover from it. And so that'll be coming out near the end of September, but yeah, you're welcome anytime over there. I'm always talking about this stuff. And I also have a podcast. So if you're into podcasts and you obviously are, if you're listening to this, it's called find your food voice. And that's for people without PCOS too. It's just for anyone with a complicated relationship with food. You are welcome to come listen there too. Mm. Well, those sound like really lovely, helpful resources. So everyone go on over to Julie's website, check it all out. And Julie, I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. And thank you again for being on the show. Thanks, Meg. Thank you so much for having me on. You're welcome. 